Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Has the time come for a major paradigm shift in how the economy works? That's what a new major report from the IPPR suggests. But will politicians take the proposals on? I'm Connor Pope, Progress Deputy Editor, and I'm joined by Progress Chair Alison McGovern, Director Richard Angel, and Catherine Colebrook, Chief Economist at the IPPR. Two years ago, in the wake of the EU referendum, the IPPR set up a commission on economic justice, bringing together commissioners from a range of backgrounds, trade unionists, CEOs, leavers, remainers, progressives and conservatives. Last week, the commission published its final report, Prosperity and Justice, which created waves in the policy and politics world with its radical proposals to the way our economy functions. Catherine, can we just start with the initial idea behind the commission? How did it start? So initially, what we wanted to do is, first of all, look a bit more closely at all the reasons that the economy isn't generating the sorts of outcomes we want. And then secondly, to try and think across the piece about different ways in which policy needs to change. But of course, you can do that without having a commission. So, you know, it could have just been a policy programme that IPPR did ourselves, as we have done in the past. But instead, we wanted to try and make it I guess, bigger than a standard piece of IPPR work. And we wanted it to have credibility with lots of different types of persons. So we wanted to bring together commissioners from all different backgrounds. So as well as economists, which we have, we also had business people, a private equity investor, other types of investor, other types of business people, as well as people from trade unions. And the idea being that if you produce something that is sufficiently well-argued and comprehensive that you can rally a whole range of different Mm. types of people behind it and that those people will then take it to their constituents in the non-political sense and convince a broader range of people that change is needed and that now is the time for it. Alison, Richard, I'll come to you now. In bringing together such a broad range of commissioners, do you think this kind of proves that wide-ranging consensus can be achieved on quite radical economic reform? It's really very difficult to get consensus on much at the moment in the House of Commons. And, you know, on the biggest issue of the day, Brexit, we look certain to have very little consensus. 
So it's unsurprising to me that people look to wider civil society to try and build that sense of consensus outside politics. And on something like wages and a lack of wage growth for most people in the UK, you know, I don't think that people on the centre-left, like me, have the monopoly on caring about that. I think if you're somebody who cares about society in general, why wouldn't you care about the fact that people in reality can afford a less decent life than they could do 10 years ago? I think Alison's right, but what is amazing about it is that that broad consensus of people coming together around this doesn't mean it's lowest common denominator. That was the kind of the fear for many people. It's like, oh gosh, that's quite a wide and broad set of people there. How on earth are they going to come up with something radical? And it claims it's a the third paradigm shift since the Second World War, Keynesianism being the one pioneered by the Labour government in 45 and neoliberalism in 79 onwards. And this hopes to be a kind of correction to both of those things and put tackling inequality at the heart of many of our economic decisions. And it could have said that in rhetoric and then fallen short in policy. Many think tank reports do. Progress have published one or two like that in the past, I am very sure of. But I think it is remarkable, actually, how it's both coherent and incredibly ambitious. Congratulations on achieving that. Thank you. I will take all of the credit. <laughs> do. Catherine, I, um, I, I wanted to come on to the, the paradigm shift. As Richard said, it the, the report has this argument that there was a, a paradigm shift in the way the economy worked in the 40s, another one in the 80s, and essentially we're due one now. What is the argument for, for one being due? So I, I guess, yes, because the, the previous two shifts have happened first, sort of what you might describe as leftward, so towards more state activism. And we had that for a while and it kind of stopped working. And then that's when we moved further to the right and more laissez-faire deregulation in the 80s, as you said. So I would probably disagree that we're due. I don't feel like it's kind of like a like a regular thing that needs to happen necessarily. <laughs> mm. But I think what we've seen in the 10 years since, so what we saw first with the crisis, then we've seen in the 10 years since, is a falling away of all of the assumptions that underpinned the way things were working with the economy. So the assumption that if you let markets work, then you know you will have this uh, this kind of broadly based growth that everybody shares in, and it's fine if people uh, make a lot of money in certain sectors like finance because ultimately it benefits everybody. They pay their taxes, and it all kind of works out, even if the state doesn't really do very much. And in fact, the state shouldn't get involved because the state tends to muck things up. So that kind of held together, but then. And of course, it was roundly discredited in 2007-8. And then in the 10 years since, we've just had this combination of a really disappointing recovery and the wrong policy response in the form of austerity, which was really never tackling the problem as any sensible person identified it in the wake of the crisis. So that 10 years, that the crisis combined with a 10-year period of, I guess, policymakers casting around for... Um, where we go next and and what went wrong and what to do about it all. It feels like it's the right moment, given that previous big changes have happened roughly 10 years after a big crisis event. So it, it feels like the time is right to look at alternatives to the way that things have been working or not working. Catherine, just, just go back one step, because I'm conscious that those of us who kind of like live and breathe the sort of economic policy up and downs will associate, you know, very strongly with what you've just said there. But I think this point is really important. We had a crash in 2008, but that really wasn't the end of it. Just say a bit more about why mm. the policy 
response was wrong mm. and why we end up with essentially a lost decade. Mm. So the immediate response was one of, you know, salvage what you can. So get the financial sector back on an even keel. That was definitely the right thing to do. And the public purse absorbed the the costs of entering a recession, which it's meant to do. But then we had a period where the government that took over in 2010, the coalition government, decided that restoring the public finances and reducing the deficit that had uh, that had developed in the wake of the crisis period and recession period in completely the normal way was a priority. So, so attention turned away from how the economy works and it turned onto how much money the public sector spends. And this was not differentiating between the type of spending. It was a complete aggregation of investment spending, of day-to-day spending, of all spending. Spending, reducing spending was the crucial role of government. And beyond that, really, government didn't have much else that it should be doing, which clearly left many questions unanswered. So there, there was work done to make the financial sector more stable up to a point. So we now do have, as Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England has accepted, we we do now have a more stable financial sector. Banks are better capitalised. So there's, they have more of a buffer in the event that the financial environment takes turn for the worse. But so so in, in terms of the financial sector, we've, we've kind of semi-tackled that with policy. But the broader questions of how the economy works and the sorts of outcomes it generates haven't been answered. And in fact, what the last 10 years have shown is that you can have growth, you can have GDP growth. It's been anemic actually since the crisis, but we've had some growth. But what growth there has been has not been accompanied by rising living standards for most people. So we we basically, we tackled the fact that we had 100% mortgages, or even in some cases, cashback mortgages, by saying that banks couldn't do that sort of thing mm. anymore. But mm. we never tackled the need for them. Yes, We exactly, never got around exactly. to the fact that it was like a glaringly obvious flaw in our economy that people were applying for such mortgages that's, in that's, the first yeah, place. Yeah. A really good way of looking at it. So finance as a kind of symptom, I mean, as it is a driver as well of, of, of our broader economic problems, just in the way that finance um, supports business or doesn't. But yes, I mean, you know, so there there is a real question there of why did people feel the need to take on huge amounts of debt? And that is not a question that I think has been answered. Or- I thought that was interesting that you split up that people have had not the returns in their wages and they're essentially working more for it. And what we should be looking for is both a better reward in your pay packet and more leisure time. It's not just your ability to spend in your leisure time. It's that ideally we want more of it. We want to spend time with our young kids, we want to see them grow up, we want to see our elderly parents more and all the things around that. And that ideally the returns from a productive and growing economy aren't just money, they are the time we can spend with each other to have fulfilling lives. And it was quite refreshing to read that, I thought. This year is exactly, um, this week, exactly 10 years since um, the Lehman Brothers um, collapsed. Um, essentially, the, the big start of the, the financial crash. And it, from what you were saying there, it, it does feel something that, as someone who doesn't particularly follow the ups and downs of uh, economic news, quite as closely as, as, as you, it does feel like... I don't we- believe that. <laughs> I mean, come on. But it does feel like we've we've had 10 years, essentially, of dealing with that. And we haven't had a kind of post-crash economics yet. And perhaps that is partly because the Tories, when they came in, said, well, the big thing is dealing with the deficit, and the deficit still is there. And so I don't know whether that is the, the reason that for 
perhaps people slightly on the outside of, of economics look in and go, well, we, are we still dealing with that? And, and is that part of what has um, kind of maybe postponed this paradigm shift uh, as it should have happened rather than it happening sooner after the crash? I don't know what people think about that. Is that a... Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. You know, essentially, we had a recovery that was much, much slower than, you know, recoveries from recessions had ever been in the past. And bearing in mind the size of the recession that we'd had, the bounce back should have been quite significant because recoveries are often symmetrical. Like in, in economic history, you know, if you look at um, downturns, often often the, the path out of recession is is fairly even in pace to the path in that's for obvious reasons because when you know the value of things drops drop quickly people take their opportunities to buy things or to make new opportunities out of the out of the change in the economy but it didn't happen that way in the UK and that's because of the policy response i think it's really important now if we're to prevent two lost decades not just one that we turn to ideas that are in the the commission's report that we think about not just the consequences of the crash, be it the deficit or, you know, the housing situation that we're in. But we look at the underlying fundamental structures of our economy and work out how we can, from a policy point of view, change them. I think we need to take a quick break there, but uh, we'll be back, be back in just a minute to discuss this more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Prosperity and justice uh, suggest that we should think about economic growth very differently and even consider measuring it differently in order to achieve what's called a, a good economy in inverted commas there can could you explain a bit more of that to us mm, Catherine mm. so so there are there are two problems really when it comes to measuring the economy and understanding it so the first group of problems is around just the fact that the economy is changing so quickly now so new technologies and new business models mean it's much more difficult to measure the value being created. So there are all kinds of measurement issues that are created by 
just the fact that the economy is becoming more advanced and it's and it's it's the pace at which it's changing is quickening. How to um, measure the value of a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's invaluable. So so the, what to us it is. <laughs> it certainly has costs though. <laughs> so donate now. Prom.rs forward slash donate. <laughs> Um, so all all of these, exactly all of these zero marginal cost goods that it used to be very simple to understand what they were worth to people because they would buy them. And now the, the model is is different. Many things that we use and that we value, we don't necessarily pay for, but they are paid for by somebody and it's often advertising or or our own data being used. So all of these things make it more difficult to actually know what's going on. And there's a lot of work going on to try and understand all of that. Um, and then the second category is... Um, is, is, is even if you've got all of those measurement issues solved, even if you could perfectly measure gross domestic product, GDP, you're still not necessarily capturing everything that matters to us. So GDP, by definition, because it was originally set up purely as a measure of production, it was never mm. meant to be a measure of welfare or well-being or environmental sustainability or any other kind of sustainability. But because of that, it can go up when um you know when it, it when things are happening that aren't necessarily positive for us so if we all spend more money on locking our doors and you know putting new security measures in that will boost gdp but it's not necessarily because the economy is 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 growing in a in a good way so for lots of different reasons the fact that it doesn't measure welfare the fact that it doesn't uh, account for the fact that if people work beyond a certain number of hours, they might be earning more money, but they might be feeling more anxious about their working lives or less secure in their working lives, which is certainly the case with the rise of zero hours contracts. And if you pay, for example, to pick up a um, pick up the bill for an environmental disaster, that goes on GDP as well. So there's really no um, building on the green belt would be another one. Where, would be another one I mean, exactly. There might be reasons to open up the green belt. Um, you know, that never mind there might be but the fact is if we built on all of the green belt tomorrow gdp would go through the roof it exactly would be, right. the construction figures would be great for gdp but nobody ever accounts for what is lost exactly um and certainly GD- gdp is certainly not it's not designed for that and we shouldn't expect that of it but it just means that we need to look at other things besides gdp and i, I think in particular in the last you know three to five years when the economy has started growing again and employment is is extremely high and unemployment is extremely low, it's actually very easy for the government of the day to say, well, look, it's all fine, isn't it? I mean, you know, and, and um, to point to the low unemployment, to point to high employment and to point to GDP growth and say, you know, there by many different measures, we're actually doing fine. But that is those things together are actually still, uh, well, they're actually telling us less and less about truthfully how people experience the economy. I was talking to um, Ed Miliband about this report the other day because I have a pretty glamorous life. Um, and one of the things he said was that when uh, the GDP stats would, would come through when he was leader, they would kind of sit around his office and go, but they don't actually kind of tell the story that is important because people don't live in 0.3% growth. Mm. Yeah. Like that doesn't mm. change their... No one's life is a graph. Their salary. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and so his argument was, you know, actually what and what progressives have always wanted to do, but is actually really difficult to do, is that when you have the chance to, what he, what he called was a hardwire fairness into the economy. Um, Alison, I just wondered if you might have kind of ideas about how, how we measure this and what Labour could do. So I think Adam is absolutely right on this. I think it was a kind of lesson of those years, especially after the crash, that you know, Osborne, and even now, Theresa May and uh, Philip Hammond 
are still basically saying, well, our numbers are good. Like, what you what are you going to do? How are you mm. going to criticise us that much because our numbers are good? Meanwhile, it, Mark Carney and others at the Bank of England are sort of like reeling with the frustration of knowing that there's deep imbalances in the UK economy, that Brexit is a massive threat, but so are these imbalances. So whether it's the housing market, the imbalance between younger people and older people and the assets they're likely to build up in their life, or um, the the imbalance between different regions of our country, that these are you know, pretty toxic to economic development in the broadest sense and absolutely toxic to politics. And most people in economics, you know, whether it's Chris Giles of the, of the FT or most of the sort of commentators who are otherwise, Martin Wolf, who are otherwise relatively neutral, they don't make great pronouncements on politics. Most of them are pretty worried about it at the moment. So what should we do? Well, I think the thing that we can do is start to think about the things that we want to measure we're never going to stop people measuring GDP. Um, David Cameron actually tried to have some kind of general measure of well-being, which I think completely fell by the wayside because it was too complicated. Was that the happiness index was that something? In else? The happiness index, mm. yeah, yeah, that's right. That, yeah. The ONS still measure it, I mm. think. Yeah, really. yeah, the ONS does a lot of measuring of well-being still. But no, the point is, I think that that basically measuring anything so gdp has to stay because that's what all the countries of the world mm. that's how we benchmark ourselves against other countries and production does still matter but you almost need other things in addition to supplement it to to broaden out your understanding you do and i and um those on the right have wanted to have a discussion about child poverty and they've always wanted to kind of redefine child poverty so it's not just about money but i think you know we can fight a forward battle on making sure that actually we do, we are measuring poverty and inequality. I don't see why we shouldn't sort of define in our own terms um, the poverty and inequality measure as being just as important um, as GDP. And I think that there's it's important to have an increasing range. So what about measuring, you know, the um, mean asset wealth? So, you know, we have, if you own a home in the southeast of England, you know, your asset wealth has increased quite a lot in the past 10 years because the value of your house has gone up. Um, for others in our country, barely anything at all. And many people don't have a kind of net positive asset wealth um, for most of their life until they they reach pensionable age. So I think there's all kinds of measures that we could look to that will kind of track some of the changes that the report sets out that we need. So this is about measuring wealth rather than income. Is that right? Yeah, because whilst, I mean, Income inequality is important. Actually, the radical change that has taken place in Britain um, more recently has been asset inequality, wealth inequality. It's partly a function of the housing market and the fact that in certain areas of our country, if you own a home, you know, the, the value of that asset has shot the, through the roof. But it's it's also a function of people not being able to save. And, you know, we've got auto-enrolment now for pensions, which is a really, really good and positive thing. But for too long, too few people were building up wealth through a pension. And, you know, that has its consequences that will echo down the years. So we ought to be tracking um, how people are able to build up, you know, pots of capital that can see them through their life, whether it's to pay for the cost of living in older age or to let them take a risk. You know, one of the big things that worries me is that in Britain today, people are going to need to take risks. They need to kind of be able to experiment with a new career or a new job or doing something as well as their job 
that is part of their creative side, but through which they might want to become their job. And if you don't have, you know, a bit of capital to get you through or to invest, the chances of you being able to do that are minimal. So we've we've got to be focused on wealth inequality as well as income. So there's quite a bit about reforming wealth taxes in the report, isn't there? Catherine, could you kind of tell us a, a little bit about, mm. about what is proposed? So the principle underlying what we propose on on wealth tax is really just that it's not fair that the income you get from work should be taxed more heavily than the income that you get from your wealth. Um, so uh, several proposals flow from that. The, the main one being that the current income tax schedule and national insurance schedules uh, should be combined into one and uh, you should fold wealth tax into that same schedule. So um, in, so income from wealth. We're not talking about taxing the principal, the actual, the asset itself. We're talking about the income, the passive income that that asset mm, right. generates. So if someone owns a flat in central London and they get a rental income from exactly. that, exactly. then that should be taxed as income, That's right. not right. as a gain from that And then yeah. same with dividends on shares, dividends out of companies when you pay yourself, mm. you own your own company, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so currently... Um, you can uh, you can get a gain from uh, from a dividend payout, and it and it will be taxed more lightly than the equivalent income had you earned it from a job, um, which which we would argue just feels unfair and hasn't always been the case actually. So um, it's just it's just returning to considering whether that is actually how we want to set the economy up. And obviously, the, you know, the the light the more lightly you tax income from wealth, the more quickly wealth agglomerates to the people who already have it. So it's a big part of restoring greater equality of wealth. The other aspect of the wealth tax that's in there that's very interesting is looking to a more European model of inheritance tax. So going away from essentially paying the tax as the person who dies at the point in which you die, uh, which is all caught up with various people's sense of esteem about what they've worked towards, the sense they can give back to the next generation, etc., is a lifetime giving tax that then is essentially means all of us could receive, I think, up to 100, 125,000 125, through your life. And if you at some point receive more than that, that also gets taxed like it's an income. Exactly. And that's yeah. quite interesting. Um, it's definitely fairer. It definitely stops you moving big tranches of wealth through the generations in big chunks. So broadly, rich people give it to rich people. And now what you're actually finding is pensioners are inheriting from pensioners. So the time in which my grandparents pass away, my dad will be a pensioner, right? And he will be the so, most likely. So you mean it's not it's not that kind of traditional thing of like, you know, passing on wealth down the generations so that perhaps when people are younger, they might receive a legacy from an older mm-hmm. relative. Actually, that's that's not that's going on now. anymore exactly. because people are living longer. You don't get a point in your life where you might need it. Mm. You actually yeah. get a point in your life mm. where you're most secure because the families who inherit are most likely to be, have a pension already most likely to have asset of their own. They're not the people who might need it for their older, their care and older life. You are literally just compounding wealth. Whereas I understand from the proposal is that it would share it much wider. You're more likely to give it to grandchildren or great grandchildren Mm. to help them at a better point in their life when you might be wanting to get on the property ladder or had a second child and need an extra bedroom or whatever that might be to take a risk to go traveling or whatever it uh, or everything. And, and also, I mean, I've always found the most bizarre thing is when people inherit money from their parents, they've worked so hard and so desperate to give over and they blow it all on going to Florida. <laughs> At least if you give it over to your grandkids and you send them to Florida, 
you can see the pictures when you come back. It all seems like a much better. You could share in part of the, like, you, you know, you've done something with that generation. And I think incentivizing that yeah. is a really positive thing. It also, Winks Links, another one of your uh, report, it, it, it could bring in 9 billion a year to the exchequer. Mm. And one of the things that we've called for in our editorial is that one of the ways to argue for this, and this is Ed Miliband's advice, is say where that's going. Which and is, we argue that that should go in um, capitalising the sovereign wealth fund because the big windfalls that we've had at various points have always been flitted away mm. on either reducing the deficit or reducing taxes for people. Mm. Um, and this should, if you're going to have a kind of um, a windfall for the exchequer on taxing well-off people, it should go back into the infrastructure of the country and it hardwiring fairness in our investment structure. Which is really important because let's face it, actually, for most people, their interest in this is not their own personal circumstances because most people aren't going to inherit anything like that, you know, over £100,000. Most people are just not. So actually their interest in this is what happens with the with the revenue. And Richard, you make a absolutely crucial point that most people don't kind of ever clock about our economic history, which is that we have had a windfall like this in the past, North Sea oil receipts. And what did Thatcher do with it? She reduced income tax rates. Now, I think that is just mainly completely missed by economic historians that... And compare us to Norway, who put all of that into... We could have had a sovereign wealth fund set up in the 80s if the economic policy choices had been different. That could have absolutely revolutionised the way that we handled infrastructure or, you know, childcare or a whole host of things. But Thatcher and Lawson completely turned their backs on that opportunity and we cannot make the same mistake ever again. I'm afraid we probably need to leave that discussion there uh, for now. But if you want to find out more about the IPPR's Prosperity and Justice Report, we've got 20 pages of coverage in the upcoming Progress magazine. And Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's review show. I've got a good cultural question this week. I'm um, excited. So Mary Wilson, wife of Harold Wilson, passed away earlier this year. At not the- just cultural, by the way, but also Wirral related. Oh, really? I'd, I'd not quite... Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, Harold no. and Mary yeah, met on tennis courts in my constituency. <laughs> Yes, they did. (laughs) So Mary passed away early this year at the age of 102. She was a celebrated poet. And in 1976, she was one of the judges on the Man Booker Literary Prize. However, she largely recused herself from doing any judges, bored by the amount of sex in the novels. Uh, This led to a stalemate between the other two judges over which book should be the winner. How did they settle it? Who knows? Send your answers to at Progress Online or at Connor Pope on Twitter or email office at progressonline.org.uk and you could win a Progress mug. We need to wrap up now, but we've been delighted to have Catherine Colebrook joining us today and we'll be back on Friday with an extra show. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.